I've been studying and, and working for this series actually for a number of months already. I think I probably started back in spring already. And uh, uh, my biggest challenge has just been uh, this week is, is how, do you, how do you start a message or a message series about Jesus? I mean, uh, his life, the scope of his life and what he did and the, the ripples that have gone out through, through history are just... Uh, so huge, so big, so stunning that it's, it's hard to know where to start. And uh, one of the things I was thinking this week is I began, to, I began to think of the ways in which Jesus has affected the world. And, and it's really actually amazing. You, it, you can basically, if you want to go to university and you want to study pretty much any major topic, okay, that has to do with human beings. So I'm not talking like you know, you go to university and you take underwater basket weaving or some, you know, bizarre course like that. But if you want to study, uh, you know, any major topic that has to do with human beings, you will find that whether you're a believer or not, you will find that Jesus Christ is the pivotal figure in that, in that topic of study. And it doesn't matter which one you pick. For example, history. You want to study history? No person in history has had as much impact as the man, and obviously he's more than a man, and we'll look at that during this series, he's the God man, right? But no person in history has had anywhere near the amount of impact on history that Jesus has had. In fact, all of history is centered on him. For example, I mean, many books have been written about this, but for example, uh, what year are we currently living in? 2012. Some of you are not sure, just so you know, it's 2012. <laughs> 2012 years from what? 2012 years from Jesus' birth. So we actually count the entire world. We count our years from the day of his birth or from the year of his birth. And this is true everywhere. It's not just here in Canada. I mean, four years ago, they had the uh, Summer Olympics in, in uh, China. So you go over to Asia there. What did they call the Summer Olympics that year? They called them the 2008 Summer Games. Four years later, this past summer, you go to London. So now we're in Europe. And what did they call the Summer Games? The 2012 Summer Games. It doesn't matter where you go in the world. And yes, I know that some of these countries have their own little calendars on the side. But the world altogether works off of this calendar system that goes back to Jesus' birth. What man in history has ever had that kind of an impact that the entire world counts their years by his birth? I mean, the thing that astounds me as I was thinking about it this, this week, the thing that astounds me is you could go into any city in any country, any continent in the world, you could go to, onto any street in that city and you could pick pretty much any person at random. It could be the most God-hating person in that city and you can ask them what year it is and they will tell you exactly how many years down to the one year it's been since Jesus' birth. I mean, it's incredible. And it's not just the way we count our years, it's anything. You want to study Western civilization, you want to study, you know, you know, the movement of nations and politics and wars, and you can't get very far without encountering Jesus' name. There's bad things and good things that have been done in his name, many bad things, but there he is at the center of it all. You can't even understand the, the nation we live in today. You can't understand how Western civilization is without knowing about Jesus. And you want to study the roots of democracy, you want to study the roots of how our political systems have come to be, you'll find Jesus' name again and again. And it's not just the history of the politics of nations. You want to study the history of social justice. You study the history of the abolition of slavery in Britain. Jesus' name is all over it. You study the history of the abolition of slavery in America. Jesus' name is all over it. You study the history of schools. When did they start? Why did they start? Who started them? And you're going to find Jesus' name all over it. Hospitals, you want to study, where do we get this idea of hospitals and medical care and a lot of this sort of stuff, the way we have it today? Who started it? When did they start it? Why did they start it? You're going to find Jesus' name all over it. It goes on and on and on and on. You want to study anything in history, and Jesus Christ is the pivotal figure. Whether you're a believer or not, he is the pivotal figure in all of human history. All of human history is just centered right around him. And in fact, this is so true. This is not me just making something up and using hyperbole in a, in a sermon. I found an amazing quote this week from an atheist. Famous, famous atheist. His name was H.G. Wells. He was an author. Uh, he was famous for writing uh, War of the Worlds. 
And, uh, and uh, in the mid-1900s, this is one of the things he said. And remember, he's a committed atheist. He, was, he, he did not like Christianity. He was not into religion. He did not believe in God. And I want you to see what he says about Jesus. He says this, I am a historian. I am not a believer. But I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all of history. Christ is the most unique person of history. No man can write a history of the human race without giving first and foremost place to the penniless teacher of Nazareth. That's what atheists are forced to admit about Jesus. So you want to study history? You can't get very far without running into Jesus. Well, maybe you're not interested in history. So you want to go to university? You want to study religion? Well, you'll find Jesus everywhere there too. Biggest religion in the history of the world, by far, by far, by far, Christianity, it bears, its, bears his name. I looked at the latest stats this week. Right now in the world, the best estimates are that there are 2.18 billion people who call themselves followers of Christ. Now, of course, obviously we know many of them are, are not true followers of Christ. There's no fruit of the Spirit. They're all that sort of stuff. But the fact of the matter is that, that one-third of the world's population claims to be following Jesus. That is, what man has ever had that kind of a following? You say, okay, well, Christianity. Okay, let's look at the second biggest religion in the world by far, Islam. The third one after that is way below it. Islam and Christianity, far and away the two biggest, okay? Islam, 1.6 billion followers in the world right now. You open up their holy scriptures, and who are you going to find in there again? The man who they call Issa, Jesus. The first and the second ones. Now, obviously, I'm not one of these people that's saying, hey, Muslims and Christians, we all believe the same thing. We're all going to heaven. No. I mean, we have some serious disagreements about Jesus. But the fact of the matter is, you've got 2.18 billion people saying they're following Jesus as Christians. You've got 1.6 billion people as Muslims following him. They think he's a, pro a good prophet. They, follow, they, say, they would say that they follow his teachings. They believe he's coming back in the end times. That's 3.8 billion people in the world right now who say that they're following this man, Jesus. That's more than half the world's population. Never in history has there ever been a person that had anywhere near that kind of a following. History, religion, what about literature? I wanted to look up this week. I thought, you know, I wonder how many books have been written about, because I mean, you can find pretty much anything these days. People have done studies on all kinds of things. I, I, I want to know how many different books have been written about Jesus. And you know what? Nobody can figure it out because so many books have been written. The best estimates run in the tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of different books that have been written about Jesus. I mean, he's just, the, he's the central figure. You want to study literature, this, that, it's all there. Again, even the atheists can't stop writing about him. Every year, atheists put out new titles about Jesus, how he didn't do this, and I didn't say this, and he didn't do this, but they just can't stop writing about him. I mean, every year, Time Magazine still puts them on their cover at least once, usually two or three times. But for sure, once every year, Time Magazine, McLean's too, they will put them on their cover at Easter, and it's the same drivel every time. Some long uh, article written by some liberal scholar about how he's nothing like, you know, who we Christians worship him to be. But the fact of the matter is, there he is on their front cover every single year. And usually they'll put them on once or twice, you know, other times during the year for some hoax. They found his wife's bones or his kid's bones or whatever, like they did again recently, about a month and a half ago. They, whatever. But they just can't, people can't stop thinking about them. I mean, I think if some aliens came from another planet and they were just, you know, watching the, the world, they might be forgiven for thinking that the human race has something biologically innate in our DNA that, that does not allow us to forget about Jesus. Literature, history, religion, you name it. I just want to look at one more, but you could, we could do more, more, more. He's the pivotal figure in human history. What about language? 2,000 years after he came to earth, 2,000 years after he lived and walked on the earth, modern English is still our language. We talk like he talked. We use many of the phrases he used are in our modern-day English come straight from Jesus. And there are so many examples. I'll just give you a, a few here. Obvious one, obviously, we've all used, you know, do unto others as you would have them do to you. That's the golden rule. That's obviously from Jesus, Matthew 7, 12. How about the, the saying, though, going the extra mile? That's from Jesus too, right? We've all used that one. That's a common phrase in English. That's from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 41. How about another famous saying, put your money where your mouth is? How many of you knew that came from Jesus? 
Matthew 17, 27. You can look it up this week. It comes directly from something Jesus did with Peter. Put your money where your mouth is. Live by the sword, die by the sword. That's another one we use all the time, right? Straight from Jesus to Matthew, or Jesus to Peter, sorry, in Matthew 26, 52. How about united we stand, divided we fall? We've all heard that one. Most people who are into history think that Winston Churchill said that. He did say it, but he's not the one who should get credit. He took it from Jesus. United we stand, divided we fall. That was Jesus to the Pharisees in Matthew 12, 26, talking about Satan. Or how about the phrase, the blind leading the blind? Jesus, again, Matthew 15, 14. And we could go on and on and on. But his, his words from 2,000 years ago, whether you're a believer or not, your language today is shaped by him. History is shaped by him. Politics have been shaped by him. Literature has been shaped by him. The whole world, Jesus Christ, is right there at the center. Of course, then we come to the Bible and, and, and God's Word, right? And this is the one that really matters, and this is the one we want to really delve into uh, during this, this series. But now we take the Bible, and we look and see, is Jesus the central figure in here? And once again, we find the answer is yes. Four whole books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, written explicitly uh, about his life. Just four whole books, just devoted to the years he spent here on earth in the flesh. That it's just, just totally devoted. And God just wanted to make sure that we, had, that we could see that life from four different angles. Like, let's just get the whole picture here. Four books just about his life, okay? And then, of course, there's the book of Revelation, which, uh, which uh, most people from other churches uh, often you know, try to stay away from. But this book is all about him, too. Lots of red letters in Revelation. Jesus talking in Revelation because it's from him, and it's all about him coming back. We've got five books in the Bible that are absolutely, explicitly just about him. But then the fact of the matter is, when you actually delve a little deeper, you find that all of them, from Genesis through all the Old Testament books, through all the New Testament books, every single one of them is actually just about him. As Jesus himself said to the Pharisees in John 5, 39 to 40, famous passage of scripture, but I want to go through some of these things, kind of an introductory message today. John 5, 39 to 40, Jesus said this, you search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life. So, I mean, that, I mean the Pharisees weren't bad for searching the Bible. I mean, they were studying the Bible. That's a good thing to be doing, Okay. But they were missing the point, the whole point of what the Bible was for. I think many Christians are, are missing the point, and I'll get to that in just a couple minutes as well. But they were studying the Bible, and Jesus says, you're missing the point because the scriptures point to me. Yet you refuse to come to me to receive this life. See, one of the things we as Christians have come, there's a bit of a misunderstanding we think that because this book has many different parts, and it does have many different parts. I mean, this book is made up of all kinds of different things. It's made of, of poetry. It's made up of, you know, wise proverbs and sayings. And it's got stories in it. And it's got history and laws and all kinds of stuff. It, this book is made up of many different parts. But we've, come to, we've kind of come subconsciously to think. Many Christians I know think of the Bible then, well, it's got so many parts, so many different writers, and it, so it has different purposes purposes, okay? It has many different purposes, and that's wrong. There, Jesus clearly said there is only one overarching. Yes, there's different things we can get out of here, and there's, you know, secondary and, and third, you know, purposes that are way, way down, but the whole purpose, there's only one purpose. You can sum up. It's a complicated book, but you can sum it all up in one sentence. Know Jesus, obey Jesus, love Jesus. That's what this book is for. That's the whole reason for this book. That's what it's here for. And one of the things, though, that I've seen now and I see in our culture that is very prevalent and that I think is extremely dangerous is a distortion has crept in about the Bible and about what Christianity is all about. And the reason I think it's so dangerous is simply because it's, it's, it's a partial truth. I mean, there's some good in it, and that's why it's sucking so many people in. But I'll tell you what the distortion is. The distortion is, is that the Bible was given to us to help us live better lives. The Bible was given to us, you know, to help me be a better person so that I, so that I know, how, and, and you'll hear people say, the Bible is, you know, and it's an owner's manual for life. And we use that analogy in the 101 too. It's fine when it's in place with what the real overall purpose of the Bible is, but you'll hear people say it's, it's an owner's manual for life. So, 
You know, if you want to know how sexuality should be practiced, you know, in your life, you, you find it in here, and that's certainly true. And if you want to know how to, how to you know, work your finances, you find it in here. If you want to know how to be a, a righteous parent and all this sort of stuff, and, and, but basically what we've reduced the Bible to is the Bible is here to help me be a better person. And so when you listen to Christian media or you watch Christian TV, or you listen to most of the sermons that are being preached in our churches across this country, and you read some of the hundreds of thousands of little devotional books that are getting printed all the time, and it takes a script, few verses from here, here's how you can overcome anger. And a few verses from over here, here's how you can have more successful relationships. And here's a few verses from over here, here's how you should spend your money and save your money. And they just, it's all about me. We have somehow managed to take this book, which is supposed to point us to Jesus, and we've turned it into, it's all about me. The Bible was given to me, and Christianity was given to us, so that we could live better lives. Before I was a Christian, I was a mess in my finance, I was a mess in my marriage, so I got saved, and I got the Bible, so that I could do better in those things. And what we've forgotten is, certainly, do, I mean, I, I just want to say something here. You might say, oh, so we're not supposed to apply the Bible to our lives. No, no, that's not what I'm saying. I mean, clearly, we have finance courses here at the church, and I've taken them. They're awesome, that are based on biblical principles and marriage courses and all sorts of stuff. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be applying the biblical principles to our life. My point is, wise, good living is the byproduct, not the point of, Christian, of the Christian life in the Bible. It's a byproduct. Imagine this. I have, a, I have a minivan. I'm the proud owner of a minivan. I love driving a minivan. And uh, I'm a dork, okay? I love it. And, uh, but anyway, I, our minivan, it, it heats excellently, I'm happy to say. So it's true that I could, in winter, on a very cold day, minus 40, I could go into that van, crank it on, and it would keep me warm on a cold day, okay? And it'll do that job very, very well. Now, the fact, though, that my van can do a good job of keeping me warm on a cold day doesn't mean that that's what I use my van for, right? I mean, that's not the point of my van. I didn't spend thousands of dollars on a van so that I could stay warm in the winter. That would just be a very expensive heater, okay? <laughs> the point of my van is my family needs some form of transportation. We need to get from point A to point B, you know, to pick up groceries or take someone to the doctor or on vacation or get to church or whatever. We need a vehicle that takes us from point A to point B. So the point of the vehicle is to take me places. One of the happy byproducts of the gas engine that's in that vehicle is it will also keep me warm on a winter day. But if any of us here knew anyone who would spend thousands of dollars on a vehicle and then just go in there in the winter and keep warm and not drive around, we would say, what a waste of money. They've missed the whole point. And that is exactly what Western Christianity has done with this book and Christianity. Wise, good living is a happy byproduct of one thing, that you are in a right relationship with Jesus Christ. The point is Jesus, not wise living. I mean, if you get to heaven someday, and it's actually hard to jackhammer through this one because we just have so many layers of misconceptions in our, in our, in our brains. I mean, you can apply all the wise principles you want from this book to your life. You can apply all of them to your marriage and have a good marriage. You can apply all of them to your, you know, to your anger problem and get over your anger problem. You can apply all of them to all these different things, and, and, and you can have a better life and a more wise life. And if you get in and you, and you stand before Jesus someday, as we all will, and if you have done all these wise, good things and applied those biblical principles to your life, but you never submitted your life to him and loved him wholeheartedly, all of this is for naught. It's for nothing. It's empty. It's chaff. Jesus didn't make you so you could live a wise little life. See, there's this whole other reality out there that we lose in the pettiness of our day-to-day -day lives. There's this reality out there, and the reality is this. There's a God out there, and he made the whole universe, and he made you. And the reason he made you was not so you could run around for 70 years on the earth and do whatever you wanted to do. He made you for his pleasure. And 2,000 years ago, he also took on flesh and came down to the earth. And he wants one thing from you, and that's your whole life. He came down to earth and he said, here I am. 
I made you, you've never seen me before, but here I am, and I want your allegiance. And that one question is the only overarching question that ultimately matters. Everything else after that is a way, 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 way distant second and third byproduct. It's all about him. It's absolutely all about him. Now, of course, when I say it's all about Jesus, well, I roll. Hello. I mean, we've all said that how many millions of times in our life, right? Oh, it's all about Jesus. It's all, you know, what's Christianity? Well, it's all about Jesus. We just say that. And, and, and when we talk, I mean, we don't actually usually talk to unsaved people about Jesus. That would be too scary. But when we talk to other Christians about non-Christians in our family, we say things like, if they only had a relationship with Jesus, their life would be changed, right? So we talk about relationship with Jesus. And we talk about, it's all about Jesus. And we've used those phrases so much that they've actually just plain become a cliche and they have no more impact in our lives. I looked up this week the definition of cliche, okay? And I'm just copying and pasting this off of a dictionary. I'm going to put it up there. This is the definition of a cliche. A trite expression, often a figure of speech, whose effectiveness has been worn out through overuse and excessive f- familiarity. So a cliche is a word or phrase. It started out having real meaning. When people were using it, it meant something, okay? It had impact. And, but over time, it gets used and used and used and used and used and used and used so much that at, at a certain point, it just becomes empty and it no longer means anything, no longer has any impact. And this week, as I was meditating and getting ready for this message, I, I, something just came to my mind, and I think that we have made the name of Jesus and the person of Jesus a cliche in his own religion. We have said things like, it's all about Jesus, and it's all about a relationship with Jesus. We as Christians in the West have managed to say those phrases so many times without actually having any experience of them in our lives that we have actually turned them somehow into cliches, into empty, meaningless phrases. And it's like we've, it's like we've covered ourselves with a blanket. We have this blanket over the church. We have this blanket over our individual lives that says, I have a relationship with Jesus. And when everybody looks at me, they see this cover that says, oh, he has a relationship with Jesus. And when I look at the blanket of my own self, I say, oh, I have a relationship with Jesus. And we just say those things. We think that's, well, I have a relationship. But if we looked under the covers, I wonder how many of us would find something absolutely empty and bankrupt. We have a covering over our lives that says relationship with Jesus, it's all about Jesus, but underneath, it's nothing about Jesus. And there's no actual relationship with Jesus. You want to see what a life that is actually in relationship with Jesus looks like? You want to see a a life, like we say, it's all about Jesus, Christianity is all about Jesus. You want to see a life that is actually all about Jesus, what that looks like on the inside, under the covers? I'm going to show you something in Philippians chapter 3. Paul talks about his life, the Christian life. You want to see what relationship with Jesus? This is what it looks like under the covers. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing. Look at the relationship there. Of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Now I'm going to read you the rest of that in just a second, but we could just stop there. That first line is absolutely stunning. It should just go straight to our hearts. This is what a relationship with Jesus looks like. When it's actually all about Jesus, it's not just something you say. This is what it looks like under the covers. Paul says he gets so much joy out of knowing Jesus, the surpassing worth, the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. He says, I get so much joy out of my relationship with Jesus. He speaks to me. He leads me. He works through me. I trust in him. I know him. The joy I get out of my relationship with Jesus is so amazing that I would gladly give up everything else in my life. Everything else in my life is trinkets compared to the absolute surpassing worth of my relationship with Jesus. Relationship with Jesus. Let's keep reading here. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. This is, again, this is what a relationship with Jesus looks like. This is what a life that actually is all about Jesus looks like. He says, I, just knowing he is so amazing that I actually count everything else in my life as rubbish. I wonder how many of us could say that we get so much pleasure out of our relationship with Jesus. We just have so much pleasure from, you know, him moving through our hearts and through serving him 
and through obeying him and through listening to him and through talking to him that we get so much joy out of that that we count as rubbish the hobbies and sports and entertainment in our lives. I'm not saying you can't have hobbies or sports. This isn't about legalism. It's, it's not about, the Christian life is not about I have to get rid of everything fun in my life. No. The point isn't you get rid of everything fun. The point is you're having so much fun with Jesus that this stuff is just extra. You actually don't even care about it that much. That you actually count as rubbish the hobbies, pleasures, sports, entertainment that fills our Western Christian lives, that that is just rubbish, it's garbage compared to the pleasure I get in an actual relationship with a real person. I count as rubbish that new house we just bought or that house I really want to buy or that career advancement, power and prestige, the money I'm trying to make, the money I'm saving, the car, whatever it is. I count all of that as rubbish because I get far more pleasure out of walking with a real person and I know him and he loves me. That's what a relationship with Jesus looks like. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him. I want you to notice something here. Paul is obsessed with knowing a person. Christianity for him is not going to church once a week and doing a few rules and here, do this and do that. No, no, he's obsessed. His whole life is just focused on, I want to know him more. He's so amazing. Every time he talks to me, wow, he changes my life. Yes, I love to serve him. Oh, the adventure of following a real person. I just want to know him. I just want to know him and the power of his resurrection. He even wants to share in his sufferings. I mean, Paul is just crazy for Jesus. I even want to just share in his sufferings so I can know him even better. I want to share in his sufferings. Becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. You know, our problem is, and we've all read this. Again, this is one of those, this is actually one of those passages. We've almost turned this passage into a cliche. Quoted on the radio, quoted in a little devotional. Oh, yay. No, it's surpassing worth. It's all rubbish. And then we just go on and we live for the rubbish. Part of our problem, though, is subconsciously we've done something. Subconsciously, when we read Paul, I'll tell you what we think. We think, Paul was a freak. <laughs> we would never say that, but we think, Paul was a freak. He was on the extreme end, okay? He was a, he was a rare, 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 rare case of he had just way over-passionalized heart or something, but he was a freak. Nobody, no, most normal people don't love Jesus like that. And we think, you know, normal Christianity is you should be bored to death with Jesus. Just deal with it. You should be bored to death with praying. You should be bored to death with listening to him. You should be bored to death with the Bible. That's normal. And when people tell us that they're bored, we say, hey, you just got to keep trucking on. Paul was a little bit abnormal. Well, the truth of the matter is, Paul was actually only doing the one thing that Jesus said he wanted every single Christian to do. Paul was just doing the one main foundational thing that Jesus said, this is what it means to be a Christian, to follow me. This is the most important thing. This is the goal of your life. This is why you become a Christian. And let me show it to you in Mark chapter 12, 28 to 31. It says this. And one of the scribes came up and asked him, Jesus, which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, The more, most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God a little bit. And you shall love the Lord your God a little bit once a week, and the rest of the week, you should just build your own little empire and have as much fun as you possibly can because that's normal and feel free to be bored by me. I'm in the wrong translation here. Okay, well, let's get back to Jesus' words. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And there's a second one that flows out of it, but we're focusing on the, on the God part, right? But the second one that flows out of it, if you're doing that, is you're also going to love your neighbor as yourself. But Jesus said the most important commandment. It's the goal. Maybe you became a Christian because you wanted Jesus to take away some addictions. That's fine. You know, in his mercy, you could come to God with any kind of motives and he just loves it. 
Maybe you came to him because you were afraid of hell, or maybe you came to him because you wanted him to fix your marriage. Those are all great reasons that people first come to, come to Jesus. But the reason you stay a Christian is not for what Jesus can do to you. This is do for you. This is the goal of the Christian life. It's the goal. It's the thing we're supposed to all be obsessed with. It's the one thing we should for sure all have in common. When Paul said, I am just obsessed. Everything else in my life is rubbish compared to, I just want to know Jesus. He wasn't being a freak. He was just doing the one thing Jesus said we should all be doing. Now, of course, some of you are sitting there right now. It's like, oh, the, the guilt. I mean, the condemnation that's being heaped on us right now, I just want to give you a little bit of hope. We're just looking under the blankets right now and we're finding things to be pretty pathetic, okay? But certainly, none of us here, and for sure not me, we are, are, are where Paul was in Philippians chapter 3. Not a chance. The point isn't that you right now today repent of your sins and become absolutely Apostle Paul-like passionate in one moment. It's not possible. That's not the point. The point is we should at least want that. We should be shooting for that. The problem isn't that we're not there. God in his mercy will take someone who's not there and take them there if they will let him. The point isn't that you're bad because you're not there. What's bad about Western Christianity today is we've come to accept that that isn't even the goal and that this is just normal and let's just be happy with this. Boredom with Jesus is not normal. It's not good. It's bad. The Christian life is about loving Jesus with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength and anything other than that, a goal, like shooting for that, isn't Christianity. That's what Christianity is. Jesus did not say, some of you are going to be really passionate for me because that's, I made some people to be passionate, but most of the rest of you are just going to be bored with me and that's okay. No. Our problem is that we've reduced Christianity to a set of doctrines. We've taken Christianity from being a passionate, wholehearted pursuit of a real person who has feelings, who thinks, who speaks, who does things. He actually exists right now out there somewhere. We've reduced Christianity from being an actual, real, dynamic relationship with a real person. We've reduced it to a set of doctrines. Dry and dusty beliefs that we can think about Jesus from a long way away rather than actually having to be close to him and follow him. And so what we have now today is this place where we have many, 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 many people who call themselves Christians. But if you, were a, if you could be a fly on the wall in their life, this is what you would see. And they call themselves a Christian. And they're, and they're decent people for the most part. And they go to church every week and they actually have a motivation somewhere in them. They do actually want to do right and they do want to please God in some very weak way. And they call themselves themselves Christians, but if you were a fly on the wall and you could just follow them for one week, this is what you would find. You would find that as soon as church was over, in the other six days of the week, Jesus hardly even comes onto the radar of their thoughts. It's not even like they're thinking about Jesus and they say, I don't want to think about Jesus today. That thought doesn't even come to their mind. Jesus isn't on their radar. They, like, they pretty much never think about him. Well, so you interview this fly who was on the wall. Maybe he's a talking fly or whatever. You say, oh. So they never think about Jesus. When they're not at church, they don't think about Jesus at all. Like, I thought they called themselves Christians. They're like followers of Jesus, right? But they don't think about him during the week. No. Oh. Well, surely, surely though. Okay, they don't think about him. But, you know, every once in a while, they must just long to open up his words. Like they must, I mean, he gave us his word and they're followers of his. They love him. They must love to pull out God's word every once in a while. And just, it's like it coming home. And they just want to think about him. And they want to think about the things that he said. Surely, yes. That at least. They don't think about him maybe during the week. They're too busy with other really important things. Not eternal, but they're important. And, and, but they must love to, to meditate on his word from time to time. No, they don't really like that either. In fact, they basically only do it when they have to or when they feel guilty. It's kind of like going to the dentist. No offense to you dentists out there, but we all hate going to you. 
It's just, just true. Just face it. <laughs> so you say, well, so they don't, like, they don't think about Jesus ever. He doesn't even cross their mind. They can be in a business meeting. They can be making huge decisions in their life. They can be playing sports, whatever, and Jesus never comes into their mind. No. And they don't like to, they don't like to read his word or meditate on his word, but surely, surely, they're followers of Christ after all. They must love to talk to him, right? Surely during the week you saw them often talking to Jesus. <sighs> no, not really. I mean, they do it before all their meals. Kind of a perfunctory manner, but to actually just talk to Jesus, no, they find that pretty dry too. So they never think about him. They don't like to think about his words. They don't like to meditate on his words. They don't like to talk to him. But surely, oh, surely, surely they must hear from him often. I mean, I bet, I bet throughout the week they get lots of little promptings when they're at work or when they're just out in their day. I bet you they get lots of little promptings because they're followers of Jesus after all. They love him. They must get lots of little promptings here and there where he just speaks into their heart and they, they want to go and give some money to someone who needs it or they want to go and visit someone who's very lonely. Or they must get little promptings in their hearts to take risks, to take so-and-so for lunch and tell them about Jesus and expand his kingdom. They must get little promptings in their hearts from time to time to take big risks, to give some huge amount of money to God's kingdom, to advance his kingdom, or, or to start a ministry they never thought before. I bet if you talk to these people, I mean, they're followers of Christ after all. I bet you their eyes would get watery in an awful hurry as they told you God's story after God's story of all the things Jesus has done in their life. Surely they must have lots of stories like that because they're followers of his after all. No, they don't have a lot of those either. Some of them used to get some promptings every now and then, but they ignored them for long enough and they don't get them anymore. So they don't like to think about him. They never think about him. They don't like to think about his words. They don't like to meditate on his word. They don't like to talk to him. They never hear from him. So my question is then, to this fly on the wall, is what is any different between these people who call themselves Christians and everyone else who is a non-Christian? They seem to have about the same amount of contact with Jesus. Well, the difference is, and this is where the answer comes back, the difference is they believe some different doctrines in their head. That's the difference. They believe in justification by faith. Oh, you can't work up salvation. They'll all get that question 100% right. You better believe it. Justification by faith. You can't work it up. And, they'll, and the atoning work of Christ's blood on the cross and the resurrection, and they, they got their doctrines down pat. But they don't have a relationship. We have reduced a relationship with Jesus. We have reduced Christianity, which is supposed to be all about a relationship, we have reduced it to a dry, dusty set of doctrines. We have reduced salvation. Salvation is not doctrines. When you stand before Jesus someday, he's not going to say, justification by faith? Yes. Check. You're in. You and I are not saved by doctrine. And by the way, I'm not against doctrine. Here's my little rabbit trail. We're going to talk lots about doctrine in this series about Jesus. Lots and lots. What we believe is very, very important. But doctrine is not what saves us. The Bible is very, very clear that salvation is not a doctrine. Salvation is a person. And I could show you many, many passages. I want to just take you to two. Salvation is a person. John chapter 17, verse 3. Let's start there. And this, this is coming from Jesus' mouth. And this is eternal life. Here it is. This is eternal life that they may know about justification by faith. No. And this is eternal life that what? That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. What is salvation? What is eternal life? Eternal life isn't something that's just going to happen in the future. If you believe the right doctrines, you're going to get to go to heaven, and that's eternal life. Eternal life is a relationship. It's knowing someone right now. That's eternal life. Christianity is a relationship, and salvation is a person. How about John chapter 15, the Jesus' famous uh, sermon about the vine and the branches? In this chapter, Jesus gives us a comprehensive message on what the Christian life is and what salvation is. Let's read it. Jesus says this, starting in verse 4. Abide in me, 
and I in you. The Greek word there for abide means stay close to, stay connected to. This is relational language to the max. Jesus says the Christian life is not about going to, it's not, it's not teacher to student language. See, in the West, we've turned Christianity into a teacher-student thing. Pastor teaches me, Christian TV teaches me, devotional books teach me all these doctrines, and I go to church and live a basically decent life, and I'm a Christian. That is not what he says here. This is relational language to the max, and this is what he says the Christian life is. Abide in me, stay close to me, stay connected to me, and I will stay close to you. Relational language to the maximum. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. I want you to see here that salvation is based on a relationship. This is from Jesus' own mouth. Which are the branches that are gathered together and thrown into the fire? It's the ones who do not abide. It's not the ones, again, doctrine is important. What we believe is important because of how it will affect our relationship. But doctrine by itself is not what's important. These branches are not gathered together and burned because they believed wrong things. They are gathered together and burned because they did not walk with Jesus. No relationship. And I could, I could develop that with many other passages. We could go to Matthew 7 and, and on and on. But I'm just going to finish here now in John 15. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Now look at this. These things have I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full that your joy may be full. This is actually good news. What I'm preaching to you this morning is good news. This is not bad news. This is not condemnation. This is good news. Jesus preached the message of abiding because it was good news. And he said, if you walk with me, you will have, your joy will be full. I mean, how many of you ever thought about joy? I mean, there's there's different settings of joy, okay? There's no joy. There's a little more, a little more, a little more, a little more. And then there's lots of joy. You can get to a place where it's absolutely redlined and that's full. You can't have any more. And Jesus says, I'm preaching you this abiding message. If you follow through on this and have a real relationship with me, this is the, this is the beauty. You're going to have fullness of joy. If you look under the covers of a life that says relationship with Jesus, one of the first things you should see is fullness of joy. And if you don't, there's probably not in actuality happening what the cover says. Fullness of joy. This is good news. But you know what? We look around as Christians and we look around and what do we see in our own lives and in the lives of Christians around us? We see an epidemic of miserable Christians. People who are grumpy at church and causing church splits. People who are miserable at work. They are ungrateful. They are unhappy. Why is there no fullness of joy? I'll tell you why. Because we've taken a relationship with a real person and we've made it into a set of doctrines. And there is no fullness of joy in a set of doctrines as important as doctrine is. Fullness of joy comes in a relationship. Well, what does fullness of joy look like in action? I just want to show you one quick example here. Acts chapter 5, 41 to 42, okay? Here's what happens. The disciples, uh, you know, Jesus dies on the cross. They're sad. He rises from the grave. Ho, 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 Happy, very, very happy. And they love him. I mean, they know him, and he has spoken into their lives. They know him intimately, and they are absolutely in love with him. And so they go on a tear and fill with the Holy Spirit. They begin to tell everyone about Jesus. As a result of this, they get arrested, they get taken to the high council, and, uh, and they get severely beaten, okay? Now, I wonder how many people here, okay, if you went to work one day and your boss tied you up and severely beat you, would that be a good day or a bad day at work? Okay? I wonder how many of us have been miserable with a lot less than that, okay? Severely beaten, And this is how they respond. Acts 5, verse 41. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Okay, you don't rejoice after a severe beating because you have a set of doctrines and you go to church every week. 
There's only one thing that can make a person rejoice after a severe beating like that, and that is an actual relationship with a real person, the God of the universe, from whom all joy in life comes. And so when they were severely beaten, they were in a relationship. They came out and just, oh, we love Jesus so much. I'm so glad we got to do that for him. That, can only, that kind of response of joy only comes out of loving Jesus. And there's no way of faking that. There is absolutely no way of faking it. Christianity is a relationship and salvation is a person. But our Christianity here in the West has gone completely off the rails. It's completely off the rails. And I, and I think I know why. I think I know the biggest reason why. And I think I know why, uh, it, you know, one of the reasons, that are probably many, but why Christianity seems to go through ebbs and flows. You'll get these kind of explosions of the Spirit and people are passionate for Jesus and then it, it kind of comes down. And then you'll have another renewal and then it kind of comes back down. And I think one of the reasons is, is because of our tendency to change relationship into doctrines. And why do we, why is there this constant human tendency to take a relationship and make it a set of doctrines? I'll tell you why. Because we as human beings like to be in control. We like to be in control. That's just the fact of it. That is just our, that is just our sinful human nature. We like to be in control. And here's the thing about a relationship. When, when your life is based on a relationship with the God of the universe and he's the one in charge, your life becomes unpredictable sometimes because you're not the one in control. And, and when, you, when your life is based on a relationship, well, like I said before, he at any moment could prompt you and you might have to actually step out and love someone. <sighs> like you might have to give some money. I mean, you were saving up a thousand bucks to, 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 for Christmas presents, which is super important for your heavenly reward. And he might say, give some to this, this widow over here. And you don't want to do that. Why would I do that, right? Or he might ask me to, to tell someone about Jesus. That's a little scary, okay? We don't want that kind of lack, in, lack of control in our lives. But we still want to go to heaven. So we have a tension. Well, how about... If Christianity isn't about a relationship with a real person, how about if it's actually just a few doctrines and a, and a few rules? And Because then, once I do these things, the rest of my life I can basically live for myself. And are there some laws? Oh, God's law is wonderful. And we've talked about the law. There are some rules we follow in the Christian life, and they're awesome. They're amazing. And, and they're from God, certainly. And there's doctrines we need to believe that are correct and all sorts sort of stuff. But Christianity is not a set of doctrines and it's not a set of rules. It's not that tame. Christianity is a relationship with a real person. Let's look at what Jesus himself says about this. And this is the paradox of the Christian life. The paradox of the Christian life is that we are all afraid to give up control. And the paradox of the Christian life is that you can only find life. So we're afraid. We're afraid of what's going to happen if we give up control. If we go from safe in the box Christianity that I can control to God of the universe and me are, in, are talking and, and I have to be sensitive to him in my spirit and follow his leadings, that's dangerous. The paradox is as long as we try to hold on to our lives and control them, we can never experience life. It's only when you give up. We're trying to control our life. We're trying to keep life. It's only when you give up life and you go into this more uncontrolled environment, it's only there that you find life. And the entire, our entire Christian faith is built on that paradox. Jesus himself said this. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. I want you to know, it says first, those first two words. Your whole Christ, the whole Christian faith, did you know, is based on what Jesus is saying in this passage. Part of your faith is denying yourself to follow him. But we have turned Christianity into a life improvement program. It's all about me. Jesus helps me. And Jesus says, that's not what the faith is about. You might have gotten saved like that when you were an immature spiritual baby, but that's not why you stay saved. You are not saved so I can do a bunch of stuff for you. Salvation is you deny yourself for me. That's what Jesus says. Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. I want you to, I'm just going to emphasize this again. I want you to notice what he does not say. It's not follow a bunch of beliefs, doctrines, or rules. That's not what it is. The Christian faith is about following a real person. You know him and you follow him. And then he goes on. Here's what he says. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. True life is found only in leaving the 
short-term safety of this controlled box we call Christianity and entering into a real relationship with the God of the universe who made you for one reason, for his pleasure. There's a lot more I want to say about this next week, uh, but I want to leave you, I just want to leave you with this, with this thought. And so I'm not going to put any more point on this. Next week, I know some of you are saying, how do I go out of here and turn on love for Jesus? You can't just turn on love for Jesus. And there's a, there a biblical progression of moving from, from not knowing him and not loving him to loving him. And I'm going to show you that at the beginning of next week's message. It doesn't take very long. But I want to leave you with this thought. I just want to have one thing ingrained in you when you leave and that you're thinking about all this week. And that is Christianity is a relationship with a real person. Salvation is a person. Salvation is found in knowing Jesus, not believing doctrines and going to church. And I want to give you a challenge this week, okay? And I want to, I'm, I'm going to challenge you uh, two prayers. And I'm just going to put them up there. And uh, Dan, if you could uh, throw those two prayers up there. I want to challenge you every day this week. And, and again, I'm not into formulas. It's not the words that are powerful. The, the point is the heart. And Jesus is a real person and he loves to answer prayers. And so my challenge to you is this week is to pray these two prayers. You don't have to spend lots of time, like an hour praying these prayers. No, no. I, 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 I challenge you. You get up in the morning, you're on your way to work. I challenge you to ask Jesus these two things every day this week. And the first thing is, Jesus, help me get to know you better. I want to enter into a relationship with you. I tell you right now, he loves that prayer request and he will begin to answer it. And here's the amazing thing about him. He's so creative. Each of you is completely different. Your personality, your place in life. He will not ask of you things he asks of me. He will not ask of me things that he's asking of someone else. Okay? This is not about guilt and legalism. The Christian life isn't about you've got to live like Chris lives. You've got to like, live like someone else lives. He's going to meet you in your life. And he, but he loves that request. And I guarantee you, he's got 100,000 million probably different ways of answering that request. But if you begin to ask him that request, he will begin to do things in your life to make that come about. In the second prayer, I would challenge you to pray is, Jesus, I give you my life. Please give me at least one prompting today. And again, it's not about a formula. It's about getting back in the habit of, as I'm living, I'm in relationship with a real person. I'm abiding. As I go to work, I'm, I'm in relationship with a real person. And he can prompt me to, at work to love people and to serve him and to advance his kingdom. Please give me at least one prompting today of something I can do for you in your kingdom. I guarantee you, you're going to start getting some promptings. And the quicker you obey them, the quicker you can move on to the next prompting. Okay? Now, that's my challenge to you. I look out over this crowd and I know for sure that some of you are chicken. <laughs> but I just say to those of you who are just a little stubborn and a little chicken, I say, I double dog dare you. <laughs> and I would challenge you during the week to take time and, and write down, reflect back in a few days, reflect back. Okay, has God begun to, has Jesus begun to answer these requests? And to share these things in cell or in your family or whatever, but you will see God begin to answer these, answer these things, and it's awesome. Jesus is a real person, and we're going to study now, in the rest of the series, we're going to study lots about him. And there's lots of cliches about him. We say things like, Jesus is God and man, but do we even know what that means? What does it mean, Jesus is God? What does it mean, Jesus is man? And we're going to study Jesus. And the whole reason we're studying Jesus is because we want to know him more. Because if we know him more, we're going to fall in love with him. Bow your heads and me close your eyes. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, we want to love you more. Life is found in knowing you. I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, this week and in the coming weeks of this series, Jesus, we are going to get to know you better. As a church, we are going to get on the path, we're going to be headed towards Paul of being people who are obsessed with following you, listening to those little promptings every day and letting you work in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.